Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One man. Goodbye. Hello, Heisman. 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Best semifinal college football day ever. No questions asked, period, end of sentence. That was the best. What we just watched on New Year's Eve, the final day of 2022, I think, and try I think you do as well, will go down in history as, as the best college football playoff day that we have ever had. Welcome into the Three Technique college football playoff at the intersection of the X's and O's and the Jimmies and the Joes. I'm Mitch Mason, along with Trey Reeves. Garrett Turney is out today. Uh, Trey, that was amazing. Plain and simple. That was what we have been dying for, for the last nine years of this college football playoff. And we'll get into stats and details as we go on throughout this recap episode. But, I mean, initial reaction, how much fun was that yesterday? That was the most fun I... I personally have ever had watching the semifinals. Sometimes we get one of the two good games. Obviously they've had the reputation dating back to the original playoff, even of just being absolute blowouts. That's the main argument that people who are against playoff ex- expansion make uh, look at the semifinals every year. They're blowouts, but now we have something to point to right now. Mm-hmm. Now you can say, well, remember 2022, remember new year's Eve, 2022, both of those games, just absolute all-timers, given the stakes, maybe two of the greatest college football games of all time, mm-hmm. and just very, very entertaining games to watch. It wasn't like a close game that you your eyes were bleeding, right? It was guys making plays left and right. Obviously, a lot of storylines that you can point to. If you're a fan of one of the losing teams, you're probably going to point to some questionable calls. We'll get into that, but just an all-out from a neutral observer perspective, amazing day of football if you're a fan of michigan or ohio state you're absolutely gutted Mm -hmm. this morning waking up and it's not a good start to your new year but man if you're just a neutral observer or a fan of tcu or georgia what more could you ask for like this was just incredible maybe save the narrative of the college football playoff semifinals because it was definitely teetering away from you know this being something that was worthwhile even worth Mm -hmm. doing some people were saying the bcs would have satisfied this year and we got just two treated to two absolute treats of the game yeah i tweeted out at one point yesterday that bcs and non-expansionists had to step out for a cigarette during that first game during the fiesta bowl because what we got to watch was why this beautiful stupid crazy game just is the best this time of year and i think you make a great point that it 
yesterday might literally have saved the narrative for college football in general. Uh, and, and I think this whole postseason has saved the narrative, right? Because coming in to the postseason, you had two narratives. One, that this might be th- that this might be the worst playoff format because you have a non-conference champion in Ohio State that gets in. You have a TCU team that doesn't move after losing in the Big 12 Conference Championship. They stay at the three seed. And while they're a nice story, there's no way that they hang with Michigan. Michigan's going to run them over. Ohio State, they got blitzed by Michigan in their last game. There's no way that in three weeks that they're going to be prepared to take on the best team in the country. And both of those narratives were flipped on their head to where you have one in TCU win over Michigan. And in the other, you're a 50-yard field goal away from Ohio State doing the exact same thing. So today's episode, very much more a conversational-like episode. We're going to traipse through both of these games. Uh, We don't necessarily want to recap them drive by drive, but rather talk about the storylines, talk about controversial plays, how we got to this point where you have number three TCU beat Michigan 51-45, and then in the nightcap, literally at the stroke of midnight. You have Georgia knock off Ohio State 42-41. Of course, the quick housekeeping item, Trey, before we get into this, if you are not following us on social media, uh, 3TechPod on Instagram and Twitter, as well as our YouTube channel, which is growing like a weed. Head on over there. If you are watching us on YouTube, you haven't subscribed to us on the audio side of things, Spotify, Apple, uh, wherever you get your podcast, the 3Technique or 3TechPod as well. Uh Trey, let's let's start here. Um, let's start with the overall narrative for both of these games. For TCU, the narrative coming in was that there's no possible way that the 32nd ranked team, according to the blue chip metric or according to the true talent metric, can hang with a Michigan team that played bully ball for the most most part of this season, that ran the ball down everybody's throats that annihilated Ohio State, annihilated Purdue in their last two games en route to claiming a Big Ten championship game. TCU basically said, hold my beer. And they not only ran the ball at Michigan, but defensively in the first half before all laws and physics got broken uh, (laughs) by the scoring in that second half, they did what nobody had been able to do to Michigan this year, and that was meet them at the line of scrimmage and make them earn every single yard. Yeah, TCU just credit to them. Credit they got disparaged, even by JJ McCarthy himself, yeah. who said this week, you know, them running a three three five, it was going to be open season basically um, for the running game in Michigan. And look, first play of the game, it looked like that was going to be a pretty solid prediction. Donovan Edwards ripped off like a fifty yard run. I think Barstool mm-hmm. even tweeted like, "Welcome to the big leagues, TCU" or something like that. Credit to them for not deleting that tweet. They've owned a lot of flack for that. But, yep. man, you just can't say enough about TCU just rising to the occasion. I kind of highlighted that their defensive line, while they didn't put up the gaudiest stats, they're very opportunistic all season long. They've been tough. Mm-hmm. They've been you know out-talented in a lot of their games this year, just when you look at recruiting rankings and um, on paper They've gone up against some more talented offensive lines than they were defensive lines all year. But, man, like, they just rose to the occasion. They were playing grown man football, and they just really frustrated Michigan the entire day. They made J.J. McCarthy 
make throws. They put them behind the change. Donovan Edwards, aside from that first run, it was a 54-yard run. Outside of that, he had 22 carries for about 70 yards. So it, they, they did a really good job of containing him. Seemed like he was having to work and earn every single thing that he got. And they, yeah, they just rose to the occasion, man. Two defensive touchdowns as well when they forced J.J. McCarthy to make throws. And that really set up their offense. They kept getting the ball back to their offense and let the offense do the thing, especially in the first half. It just seemed like they were in complete cruise control up until halftime. We'll, we'll talk about the game specifically here in a moment, but let's switch over to Georgia, Ohio State. Georgia was down 14 points in the second half. Ohio State began pulling away. And, you know, we were watching this game together, I, and I ma- made the comment, I wasn't rooting for Georgia necessarily, but I wanted a, a special finish, the same finish that we saw with TCU Michigan. I wanted to be glued to my seat until the final moment of the game. And boy, did it deliver. How about Georgia, though, getting down early? They don't force a turnover in this game, which is what their defense has done so well this season. And that's how they've crushed teams time and time again is they make your offense, they kick your offense off the field by taking away what you do really well. And then their offense goes to work. And we've you know mentioned numerous times this year, yeah, their passing game, not, not the best. Their running game, not the best. But because that defense gives them so many opportunities statistically, they run the points up and they blow teams out. They find a way without forcing a turnover on defense to come back against one of the most talented teams in the country in Ohio State. Yeah, and you know we talked about if there was one thing that worried us about Georgia going into this game, it was their pass defense. And it mm-hmm. was taking a step back from where it was last year. And if there's any team that's going to exploit even a strong but somewhat questionable secondary, it was going to be Ohio State with the receiver Mm -hmm. talent and the quarterback talent that they have. So Ohio State came out with just a fantastic game plan. They didn't blink facing straight up against Georgia. They go down the field. I think they forced a missed field goal on the first drive and then immediately followed that up with a touchdown and said, from the get-go, we're here, we're ready to play. But credit Georgia, credit Stetson Bennett. He threw a really bad interception in the first half, and he bounced back just fantastically throughout the whole rest of the game and led that team. Lots of composure from Georgia. The defense could have hung their heads as well. They gave up a lot of big plays, but they stood tall in the red zone a couple times, made some big hits, made some big plays, and ultimately that got the job done, even without getting a turnover or you know having a big... I don't know that there was a big game-changing play like we usually see from the Georgia defense, but they just... Stood the task, they stood strong, and ultimately it worked out for them. We opened the show by saying that this was the best semifinal day ever. Trey, in the eight previous years that we've had two semifinal games, uh, this was the ninth year of the playoff, do you know how many one-score semifinal games there were before the two yesterday? It wasn't many. I'm going to say three. I haven't looked that up, but I'm going to say Exactly. That is exactly right. Three total uh, the first one ever played, the Ohio State-Alabama Sugar Bowl, 42-35 for Ohio State, um, when Zeke went absolutely bananas, ran for over 200 yards against the Crimson Tide. Then you go to maybe the greatest football or college football uh, playoff game ever played, the 2017 Rose Bowl between Georgia and Oklahoma, a 54-48 double overtime win for the Georgia Bulldogs. And then uh, you have to go all the way back to 2019. 
Clemson beats Ohio State 29-23. That one was also a classic in the Fiesta Bowl. Other than that, though, you look down the list, and it's blowout after blowout in these playoff games. And you you talked about it. You said that this year might have saved the narrative. As, as much as we didn't like the narrative being portrayed by the talking heads that the playoff has been a failure, that why on earth are we expanding this? There's, there's no reason to. Bowl season has been a nightmare over the last several years with the transfer portals, with opt-outs. This year saved that because not only did you almost double the one-score games, you got, if, if you think that Georgia and Oklahoma is the best semifinal game ever played, then you got games number two and three yeah. right there in one, one day, right? In the span of like nine hours, you had college football history back to back. And, you know, we, we're not really going to talk about bowl season on, on this podcast. Well, we have an entire offseason to, to digest some of those storylines. But you combine some of the amazing games that we've gotten to watch in bowl season with yesterday. And the next question that I wrote down in our notes, it really feels like the transfer portal and the expanded playoff can actually set the stage for more of what we've gotten this year rather than the opposite being true. And I'd love, I'd love your take on that. Yeah, and just to go back to the one-score game thing, even if you just take away the margin of victory, if you just think about compelling games, like games that you didn't want to turn off at halftime, mm-hmm. did the math on this a little bit earlier. Going into yesterday, even if you count the national championship games, uh, going into yesterday, there had been 24 college football playoff semifinal and championship games played. Just not even from a you know final score margin standpoint, but just from a competitive game standpoint, eight of those are ones that I would say are compelling. And that's even being a little bit generous. I counted mm-hmm. um, the Georgia-Alabama championship game last year because that was a closer one that Georgia kind of pulled away at the end. And I yeah. even counted the LSU-Clemson one because that was competitive for the first half before LSU kind of pulled away. And I think that's being a little bit generous. They were yeah, eight, it is. eight for 24, so 33% of the college football playoff games had been one you could deem as compelling or one that you should watch into the fourth quarter. Not a good average, right? Like not, not really batting. You know, if you're an MLB player hitting 333, that's great. But if you're looking for fan retention or reason to tune in, 33% chance of getting something that you're glad you tuned in for is not a great batting average. So (laughs) I think, you know, back to your question, you know, we add two more of those. So now we're sitting at 10 out of 26. I, I really agree with you. I think, you know, the transfer portal, expanded playoff, you're going to have more schools with opportunities to show up like TCU did yesterday. I think anytime you get a team showing up for the first time, a team that's not supposed to be there, I've talked about this throughout bowl season. I've talked about this, you know, even back to the regular season, we're talking about TCU showing up in these big time games. That's the beauty of college football and professional football talent is relatively equal and it's going to come down to, you know, who shows up that day, who throws more interceptions, who steps up on that day. But in college football, there is a huge motivation factor and a huge um, doesn't, isn't supposed to be here syndrome that shows up a lot. And you see it time and time again, teams that aren't supposed to quote unquote, aren't supposed to be in the position there. And like TCU yesterday 
show up and they ball out and they just kind of play with nothing to lose. And a lot of times when you're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds, that is a huge, huge advantage. So as we get more teams getting their feet wet for the first time in a playoff situation, you know, they make a Cinderella run and win their conference. They show up and win a conference championship game, even though they have three losses and they end up in the playoff. You're going to see teams play above their quote unquote ceiling in these playoff games. I think that's going to lead to more competitive games. Add in the transfer portal, kind of spreading talent around and kind of moving pieces and giving some of these bigger programs more to think about or more just individual players that they have to worry about going to other places. I think it's great. I think it's going to really spread um, spread really well and kind of spread these results and make it more compelling television. Plus, when you get an expanded round, you're way less likely to have two teams that are just completely mismatched, right? Like when we're getting a eight versus a nine seed or a seven versus a 10 seed, those teams are so, so close. That's going to be compelling television in that round. We don't have to talk about that and break that all down, but I think this is a good sign moving forward. We can't call it a trend just with one year, right? but I'm really excited. And I think that we're going to see this more often going forward. I think, yeah, that's a great point. I think getting the data a data point in, in the way that we did. And it's not just, it's not just a year where you look back over, you know, five years from now and you go, yeah, I mean, yeah, 2022, that was, that was sure. Uh, that was a point in favor of the expansionist. Like, this was so emphatic that I think it's, it's a could, could be a watershed moment as we head towards 2024. We're going to have one more year before the official expansion. So you know, who knows what happens in 2023. And we're still figuring this out with the transfer portal. I mean, you have four and five star guys that come in and spend one year to place, right? Think Quinn Ewers. Spend one year to place. And then decide, no, actually, I'm going to transfer out. He goes to Texas and leads them to an eight-win season and into an Alamo Bowl game, right? So you just, you, you have so many chess pieces that move to different boards, <laughs> each and every year that I do wonder if now you're going to see more parity in college football. And and that's at least what a lot of folks are starting to say, okay, there might be something to this that we thought the Alabamas of the world were going to hoard everybody. And instead you're seeing talent disperse. And TCU is a great example of that. Well, and I think what TCU also does is it takes away the narrative that's been floating around so often that we'll never have a Cinderella in college football. I think a lot of people that are pro playoff expansion have pointed to the NCAA tournament and how awesome it is when a school like St. Peter's makes a Sweet 16, makes an Elite Eight. And yeah, even if they get blitzed by the team that they play in an Elite Eight, it's a fun story to follow, and it just makes it more compelling. People have really, really spoken out against that and said that we'll never have that in college football based on the talent disparity that's on there and just how rare it is. Even if it's rare, even if it's once every 10 years, give me that storyline. Give me that hope that a whole bunch of other teams can point to. When we have our first 12-team playoff, every single underdog coach is going to point to this TCU team and say, look at what they did to Michigan. They were not supposed to win that game. Even, you know, I don't want to call Ohio State an underdog, but I don't think many people were giving them much of a chance to stay close with Georgia, let alone have a chance to win that game with eight seconds to go. Mm -hmm. They battled and they competed. And that's a way different situation than TCU. But yeah, like 
that narrative that there was never going to be an opportunity for an upset or a Cinderella story, or it was just always going to be chalk that so many people were peddling. TCU just spit in the face of that narrative yesterday. And it's awesome. <laughs> I, we do love uh, a good David versus Goliath moment. And, and let's start with, with that game yesterday, TCU beating Michigan off the top. And this continues to amaze me because it's something that you only see when you play NCAA 14, right? When when you take over a terrible school and, you know, you've been playing the game for a decade, so you know what works. And just like that, you're, you know, in the college football playoff or international championship game. Sonny Dykes took a real-life 5-7 and seven team that just got rid of Gary Patterson, who had led them for... The guy that built their program from... How many years? Yeah. yeah. Had a statue built for him. Doesn't make a bowl game, gets fired, becomes an analyst at Texas, and the first guy that comes in to replace him goes undefeated in the regular season, plays for a conference title, and just beat the Big Ten champion and will now have a a legitimate chance to win a national championship. Now, I know TCU opens as like 13.5-point dogs to Georgia. I think that is a ludicrous stat. Uh, especially given what TCU has done. We can talk about that more later. But the fact of the matter is that little old TCU has a chance, is four quarters away from being the best team in college football. Yeah, it, again, just goes back to that narrative, right? Like, TCU showed up ready to play in this one from the word go. And they had heard for a whole month how they didn't belong. They were going to get blitzed by Michigan. Michigan was just going to run them over. And, you know, I think it was a combination of TCU playing with zero fear. And Michigan, I think, especially early, playing with a lot of fear. I think that they realized very quickly that it wasn't going to be easy for them. And they kind of, like, recoiled a little bit. That first half went about as poorly as it possibly could have gone for Michigan. And they were definitely not feeling themselves. Credit to them for coming out in the second half and making it a football game when TCU was looking like they were going to run away with it. But man, that first half, even that first drive, I think, I can't remember what TCU player said this, but he was quoted, one of their defenders was quoted after the game of saying, you know, Michigan runs that weird trick play on fourth and goal with the one yard line oh. instead of giving it to Donovan Edwards and yeah. or sneaking it or just the bevy of things that you could have done in that situation. You run, try to run a Philly special. And the TCU <laughs> defender... Uh, I think it was one of their linebackers. I can't remember which one. He basically said, like, we knew we had them when they ran that play. Yeah. We knew that they were scared and they weren't really believing that they could bully us when they ran that play. If they were already on the first drive going to reach into their bag of tricks and they didn't want to just run it right up the middle like they said they were going to do all game, TCU felt like they had them. You know, mm-hmm. and even maybe even if that play works. TCU maybe still feels confident they had to run a trick play on fourth and goal from the one-yard line to score on them on that first drive. So, you know, really fascinating game just to break down. Max Duggan does not have his best game, maybe one of his worst games, statistically at least. Um, when, when you look at the final stats, it looks like one of his worst games of the year. Yeah. Um, obviously, his leadership, his intangibles, him making big throws down the stretch definitely standing in there under immense pressure the whole game and just moving around finding guys his touchdown passes you know the the first one especially when he's under duress rolling back throwing off his back foot and he finds uh finds his receiver for the touchdown just an amazing we can't say enough about his 
ability to battle and just go all out for his team, right? But not the best statistical day, and the team still rallies around him. They lose their number one running back. You could just list yeah. adversity after adversity the TCU faced and overcame in that one. But yeah, credit to them. Showed up ready to play. Didn't play scared. And really kind of bullied Michigan. They flipped the script and really took uh, took that ground and pound attack to Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, Duggan, his stats aren't going to wow you. You're right. 225 yards, two touchdowns. He also throws two picks. I have to point out, neither of those interceptions was his fault. The first one was right. a batted ball. Right. May- yeah. Maybe shouldn't have thrown that that pass over the middle on a slant. But, you know, you and I reacted to it live. That Michigan middle linebacker for sure committed pass interference, was yeah, draped absolutely. over uh, the wide re- – Tay Barber, I believe, is the wide receiver, like Cape, and uh, the ball gets tipped and, and uh, is intercepted by a diving Michigan safety. The second time, he hit his man between the, the ones on his chest, and you know wide receiver doesn't make the catch, ends up in the hands of a Michigan defensive back. So, to me, neither of those interceptions are his fault. And, you know, you had – Texas Longhorn Twitter was trying to take every bit of joy they could away from TCU yeah. yesterday and, so and just just had to eat it uh, when the Horn Frogs won that game. We had, you know, one of their fan accounts trying to trying to say that Max Duggan was trash and I quickly tweeted his season stats at uh, at him and was like, "Man, like yeah, they wouldn't would, switch would, quarterbacks with TCU straight up so quickly. Like, yeah. like they wouldn't, you know. Duggan was a top. Out. Yeah. yeah, even if you didn't believe that Duggan was a Heisman finalist, which I personally did not believe that he was over some of the running backs I would have put in ahead of him, he's a top 15 quarterback in the country this season. So, you know, to say that he was trash, that he didn't belong there, uh, sorry, man. Like, you just took your team, you know, what What are they, 13 and one and playing for a national championship. So, it's a TCU. Uh, to the national yeah. championship. I don't care yeah. if he's throwing 50% completions and has thrown 20 interceptions this year. If you take TCU to the national championship game, you are a legendary college quarterback. We, so weird, weird circumstance that only I feel like college football provides. We are literally going to have a national championship between quarterbacks who first, Max Duggan, was not the starter at the beginning of this year, only won the job in the Colorado game because Chandler Morris goes down with a season ending injury, uh, ends up a Heisman finalist. And then on the other side, Stetson Bennett wasn't the starter last year when he took Georgia to a national championship and now may double dip if they win Uh, just an incredible storyline for both of these quarterbacks that I'm really excited to, to watch unfold next Monday night. Um, Talking more about this game, you you mentioned and highlighted TCU really uh, through the the first uppercut against Michigan. They stopped them on the goal line of that play. Michigan, for whatever reason, decides not to run it up the middle. For the most part in the first half, TCU stopped Michigan's running game. Now, Michigan gets it going in the second half when I said all the physics of, of the world were broken in that third quarter. We had 44 points scored. In the third quarter alone, that is the most of any playoff game in college football history. But you look at the first half when the stats really kind of make sense and, and neither team was in hyperdrive mode. And TCU won at the point of attack. They made J.J. McCarthy very uncomfortable in the pocket. And, you know, I feel like we've talked a lot about the team that's won. Now let's maybe switch over to Michigan. What on 
earth was Michigan doing in that first half? They scored six points, two field goals in the second half. You have the fourth down catastrophe on the first first uh, drive of the game when you don't just run it up the middle. The next time you're in on the goal line, you have a very controversial call, which I want to talk about here in a second. But you hand it to your fullback up the middle. He immediately loses the ball on first contact, does not break the plane. TCU recovers another fumble. So you have two drives inside the three-yard line when you do not hand it to your best running back up the middle and rely on your Joe Moore award-winning offensive line for two years in a row, not just once, back-to-back years that they've won that award. You don't trust them. You come away with nothing, and you sit at the half. You have two measly field goals while TCU has had, I think, just one pick six at that time. They're up 21-6. What was Michigan doing? I have no idea. And I think a lot of Michigan fans are asking that same question. Now, that overturn of the long bomb touchdown, yep. I think we both agree that that is Horrendous. one of the worst overturn replay overturns we've ever seen. I don't think there was any video evidence to overturn no. that call on the field. No, And you could tell that that combined with the fumble on the ensuing play really affected Michigan. So... Obviously, that happened. You can't take that away. But I think had that call gone that way, you might have seen a completely different rest of the first half. You might have seen a completely different game from Michigan. But, yeah, man, I I don't know. I think a couple things. Michigan really came into this game, like we've said, expecting to bully TCU. They thought they were going to push them around. They thought that 3-3-5 defense was going to be really easy to overcome really easy to just run right down their throats they found out very quickly that that wasn't going to be the case and i think Mm -hmm. that was in the mind of jim harbaugh on those you know inside the goal to go situations and even in the second half i think they got cued on a reverse they got cued on a you know their two-point conversion plays were a lot of misdirection and not just running it right at tcu TCU being able to step up and stop the run was in the mind of Jim Harbaugh and the offensive uh, staff of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And it definitely got in their heads. They were, they were, they were bullied up front and they couldn't block TCU's three man front in the run mm-hmm. game. And TCU kept running the same delayed blitz packages time after time, after time, <laughs> and Michigan just didn't make any adjustments, it right? Kept working. It, it, they looked like they were going to rush three and they would delay blitz one or two of their linebackers, depending on the situation. And Michigan, the number of times that they just let a free rusher come through because they didn't communicate or they didn't pick it up or they didn't audible into a different coverage, too many to count. And I think if you're a Michigan coach watching that film, you just got to be shaking your head because that's not characteristic of that offensive line. Like you said, they've played a lot of games together. They know what they're doing. And yeah, I think it really got in their heads, especially the play calling all throughout the game. Now you won't talk about the ones in the second half because they actually worked right. The reverse, the misdirections on the two point conversions, those worked. So we don't talk about those, but it was not a game where they could just hand it to to Edwards up the middle and the rest would be history. They saw a lot of those types of games in the big 10, especially when Blake Corum was still healthy and this was not a game that they could do that. And I think that really shocked them and really affected them, affected their psyche for the entire football game. I So I was thinking while we were watching that game, Michigan 
did an unusual amount of trash talking before this game, right? And J.J. McCarthy, we've mentioned it, called out TCU, said it is going to be Big Ten smash-mouth football, and they're not going to have an answer. They're running a 3-3-5. How can they stop the run when they only have three down linemen? And TCU said, we'll show you how. Exactly. and, and they, so forgot. I, they, they were treating it like it was going to be, you know, a defense that's built to stop the air raid. But TCU had a lot of fast athleticism. I, I actually, you know, the 3-3-5, watching it in action for TCU all year, they've been a pretty good rush defense. Not elite, mm-hmm. but they've done a really good job when they've had to of stopping those third and short, those fourth and short. They've done a really good job of getting off the field in those situations all year long. It's because they're, they have a lot. Their linebackers are just so athletic. Yeah. Right, they they fly to the ball, and that's what Michigan I think was underestimating in this one. They thought they're gonna have some undersized guys in the box. We're gonna be able to just run right at them. Our linemen are gonna be able to take care of them. I don't know if they were just lazy in their approach of scouting how TCU was gonna have run blitzes and different packages in there. I don't know if it was laziness or just arrogance, but they were mm-hmm. not ready for what TCU the blitz packages that TCU threw out. Yeah, it was you know. I that was never my style when I was an athlete, right? I I never trash talked was always just let your play show it on the field. And that's why, man, like Michigan straight up got humbled. And Mm -hmm. I I think they're going to catch some flack from the internet and their own fans over why on earth were we talking so much trash? There's a viral video from a couple of fans in one of the front rows where it's clearly a husband and his wife. And the wife like looks over to her husband and literally you can see her mouth. Maybe they are actually good. And that, that to me was kind of a, a, a harbinger of, of a much larger issue where I think the team and the fan base were all just convinced, yeah, they shouldn't be here. This is little old TCU. They, oh, well, they, they beat the Big it's 12 story, teams. but it's going to end. Yeah, Midnight but it's going to end. Real. Yeah, they have they have met their match. They didn't even win their own conference championship game. They're lucky to be here. And Michigan played like they believed that TCU was lucky to be there. And they got it shoved right back in their face. Um, now, the elephant in the room. We talked about play calling. We haven't really talked about the turnovers. J.J. McCarthy throws two picks. Both of them get housed. So free 14 points that Michigan just donates to the cause for uh, toad, but I think it is fair of us to say, and this is going to be subjective. This is going to, to only be, uh, you know, just kind of a, a personal examples, right? I believe given the gravitas of the situation, the, the historic moment that we were in, I believe that that SEC officiating crew did the worst job potentially in college football history at officiating that game. And typically we don't steer into this. We've complained about the officials before, but typically just in a passing comment. I'm not going to say that TCU won this game because of the officiating, because there were bad calls both ways. Yeah, Yeah, there there were bad calls both ways. At the end of the day, TCU won that. Like we mentioned, one of Max Duggan's interceptions absolutely should have been pass interference. And it set up that egregious non-replay overturn. Yeah. There were numerous bad calls that went in favor of TCU. So Horn Frog fans do not hear what I'm not saying, that that Michigan was somehow robbed of winning this game. I don't believe that. That being said, Michigan was robbed 
of numerous opportunities to go win the game, starting with that what should have been a touchdown catch to Roman Wilson. J.J. McCarthy throws a deep bomb down the field on what was the second drive of the game, way behind the TCU defense, and the throw is just a hair shy of the actual end zone. So Wilson falls on basically the half-yard mark, does not make the catch. It hits off his forearms, it bounces up in the air, and by the time he has secured it, he's across the plane in the end zone. That is indisputable video evidence that proves that. And yet and upon review... The call on the field was a touchdown. And the, and the call on the field was a touchdown. And yet, despite everything pointing to the fact that, yes, that was a good call, the officials come back and say, nope, just kidding, we're going to overturn it. And then the next play is the Michigan fumble. So on one hand, Michigan should have punched that in. I mean, come on, guys. You're on the half-yard mark. Just don't fumble the football. You're in. So that's on you guys. What isn't on Michigan is a... An, an egregious lack of just eyesight by whoever that video replay official is to the point that how can you trust that replay official with another game? That was so such an easy call without the hours of training and studying the rule book. Those guys are the experts on this game. And yet every person in America watching that game from their living room went, that's a touchdown. Obviously, he is across the goal line. He did not have that ball ahead of time. That's a touchdown. I think you can also loop in the targeting call at the end and and take this wherever you want. I put it on our Instagram. I put it on our Twitter, a still shot. Granted, it is a still shot. It's not the full video. So if you want to say that there's some sort of context that you have to run the full video back, fair. Go for it. Clip me the full thing. They didn't call targeting on the final play of the game. And Trey, I think that might be, again, given the, the, the weight of the moment, that might be the most egregious no call in college football history. So a couple of ways you can take this, run with it. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to make, I don't want to have a 10-minute rant about the refs in this yep. game because I think I could. Yep. But And it would be justified. Line, yeah, and the bottom line is a, a couple things. Bottom line is when everyone in America can see the right call and you go the other way, like something's up, right? We got, we got to take a hard look in the mirror. Refs will never have to answer for that call. Um, involved, like, unless they just absolutely want to, unless they want to issue a statement themselves, they're never going to have to answer for that call. I don't think that that's right. I think in the heat of this moment, how much this game means, should be able to question the referees. They should have to issue a statement or a justification or maybe even have a press conference after the game like coaches and players do. Yeah. And, you know, we've got to figure out this targeting rule because, you know, we'll talk about it in the Georgia-Ohio State game. There was a questionable targeting overturn in that one. I think you and I both agree that that was a good overturn. Yeah. But there's just no coherent ability or just desire it seems to make targeting consistent from game to game or conference to conference. There's just no desire. There's no guidance on it. We've got to fix that because it is putting the integrity of now a college football playoff semifinal. Do I think Michigan would have driven the field and scored a touchdown? Absolutely not. They had 25 seconds left. They had no no timeouts, still 50 yards to go. I don't think that Michigan would have scored, but you took away their one chance. And you got, and if it's about player safety, that was a very dangerous play that the TCU defender yep. um, 
participated in there. So, yeah, I, I could keep ranting about targeting. Bottom line, as a college football just ecosystem, we have got to figure out officiating. Because if you don't know, these guys are not full-time referees. They have day jobs, and they mm-hmm. come into these games on the weekend as a secondary profession, most of them. Mm-hmm. Like, when you get the officiating coordinators and all those guys that are in the SEC off- or the conference offices, those guys are full-time you know, official organizers. But mm-hmm. these guys that you see on your random college football game every weekend, they have day jobs. They're teachers. They're businessmen. They are, you know, fill in the blank, whatever they are. And they're doing this as a hobby, basically. Like, yeah, the fact that we have a multi-billion dollar industry that comes down to some guys that are, and you know, like mad respect to those guys. They have earned the right to be there. They are, they've, had to go through a strict vetting process and they work their way up literally starting with JV and junior high games and work their way up to college games. But the fact that we don't have full-time professional referees in some of these conferences that are making billions of dollars a year from TV revenue is just Uh stupid in Uh 2023. So that's the end of my rant. We've got to get that figured out. We have to have full-time refs. We All this television money we're getting, just divert 1% of that to paying enough referees a full-time salary that they can mm-hmm. focus on being the best they can be at their jobs and not have to worry about it as a secondary hobby. Oh, we heard about the, the conference surpluses during COVID, right? The, you know, the SEC is sitting on a half billion dollars, if not more. Put that in a dang endowment for your referees and pay them whatever it takes. Pay them 150 grand a year. Doesn't matter. Like give them incentive bonuses for going to like do what it takes to be, to be good at this and don't just settle for crap that we get every single week that literally changes the outcomes of seasons. Let's, let's do this. I, I had a point on our run sheet to talk about Jim Harbaugh and the, in the job that he's done. Let's save that for another episode because I think, I think as we kind of review some of these programs in the off season, I think Jim Harbaugh is going to be a central figure as we talk about the Big Ten, as we talk about Michigan. So we'll table that for right now. Let's move to the second game. Georgia knocks off Ohio State. They are going to go for back-to-back national champions uh, championships. Kirby Smart would be the first head coach to achieve that in the playoff era if he's able to win. And the, the thing that jumped off the page to me in this game was the quarterback battle. I mean, Stetson yeah. Bennett, C.J. Stroud, they went blow for blow. Uh, Stequavius, as we were calling him all season long, 398 yards, three touchdowns and a pick, and it was a bad pick, but Georgia ends up rallying. C.J. Stroud, who I think we're going to plant on here for a minute, 348 yards, four touchdowns. Ohio State did not turn the ball over. And C.J. Stroud, Trey, made every single play that was asked of him. We spent, and it wasn't just us, a lot of talking heads around the country spent a month after they got bludgeoned by Michigan, saying, you know what? He's not that special. He's just not. You throw pressure at him, you throw, you disguise your looks, and he's not going to get through all of his reads. If you get an edge rusher in his face, he makes poor decisions. He doesn't know how to get, a, get the ball away quickly and efficiently to keep that offense on schedule. Early on, Georgia did not get pressure in his face, but in the second half, they did. They found a way to get the, the safety blitzes coming off the backside. Jalen Carter was bullying his way up the middle from that three-technique spot. And C.J. Stroud, it didn't matter. 
He made plays. He rolled out of the pocket. He delivered downfield. He directed traffic in a way that is worthy of a top five pick in the NFL draft come April. I mean, you think about that Marvin Harrison Jr. touchdown when he's rolling to his right. Harrison Jr. is going to the left. He's running basically a deep post and has run to the back of the end zone. He's out of room and he sees CJ direct him, hey, go the other way, go to the right corner. And before Marvin has even changed direction, CJ's throwing that ball to where only his guy could go get it. CJ answered a lot of questions. That loss is not on him. Not at all. He was the only thing that the offense had going for it. He added 34 yards on the ground. Um, (laughs) That's after you factor in the sacks that he took. And Ohio State, one of their problems that we've highlighted is this in these bigger games, they've had no run game to speak of. And that reared its ugly head again. Um, their leading rusher, Dalen Hayden, had just 43 yards on nine carries. And, you know, they figured, I think part of that is game plan, right? Because I don't think that Ryan Day and that Ohio State offensive staff looked at this matchup with Georgia and thought, we're going to beat them by running the football. They only attempted 32 rushes um, in the whole game. but. I think a lot of that was, you know, them saying CJ Stroud is our chance to win this game. And they put the game on his shoulders and he absolutely delivered. Um, it was an amazing quarterback battle. CJ Stroud doesn't turn the ball over, handles the pressure really, really well, answered a lot of questions that I had about him personally. I know Garrett even said he wanted to address uh, Ohio State publicly. I know he can't be here with us today, but he wanted to publicly apologize for saying that this was going to be a blowout. Um, and publicly apologize to Joe and Longview specifically. But yeah, can't say enough good things about CJ Stroud. He made some just jaw-dropping plays in this one. And really, you can say that about both sides, right? You think back to the Brock Bowers acrobatics on the sideline to extend that ball and get the first down on yeah. fourth, fourth, uh, fourth and four, I think it was. Just the, Georgia doesn't win the game without that play. They also don't win the game probably the play of the game and I know one that Ohio State fans are really upset about is you know another scrambling situation CJ Stroud lobs one up in the end zone it looks like he's just throwing the ball away but he puts it right into the arms of Marvin Harrison Jr. and had it not been for I think what we both think is a super clean just good football hit hard hit hard but good football hit um, that was initially called targeting but then overturned had not been for that perfect hit, Ohio State scores there and they probably win the game. And it's yeah. all C.J. Stroud just giving his guy a chance and Marvin Harrison Jr. making a play. Now, the flip side of that is it completely changed the game because it knocked Marvin Harrison Jr. out of the game. Yeah, He was balling out. At, at that point, had five receptions for 106 yards and two touchdowns. And just him not being on the field definitely made a difference down the stretch. But... Can't say enough good things about C.J. Stroud. Like we said off the top, Georgia defense had some holes, right? We I highlighted, uh, yes, a couple of us did. highlighted their pass defense going into this game. We thought that Ohio State might be able to exploit that and make this a closer game, and that was absolutely right. That played out exactly how we thought it might. But credit them for just stepping up when they needed to. And I know for Ohio State fans, it hurts so bad to have that come down to a 50-yard kick. I don't know. Do we want to talk about that closing sequence? I know there's a lot of discussion out there on Twitter, on the college football spaces 
of how Ryan Day managed that closing sequence. Well, I think let's 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 talk about the last five minutes of the game, maybe, sure. and and, and, yeah. and get to that to to close that sequence out. Ohio State has the ball. They're driving. It feels like okay, this is it. Uh, they're going to march down and, and score again, and that's all that's going to be written for the Bulldogs. Georgia's defense comes up with a stand, forces fourth and three from about midfield, and Kirby Smart has maybe the best timeout of all time. <laughs> yeah. Ohio State lines up in a funky-looking formation. Uh, they overload one side. Georgia obviously responds to that. Turns out it looked extra funky because Ohio State had 12 men on the field, but the officials don't don't blow that play call. And so as Ohio State takes a snap to an up back to run for the first down on fourth and three, it gets blown dead. Kirby Smart is screaming at the official for a timeout. He's pointing at the unbalanced formation, and Georgia dodges a bullet. Ohio State has to punt. They don't obviously go for it there on fourth and three. And that's the drive that sets up the Bulldogs. What would be the game-winning score is Stetson Bennett throws to A.D. Mitchell. How about that sequence, though? Kirby Smart, I don't know if he actually saw something, if his spidey senses were going off, but what a moment in the blink of an eye to get that play call blown dead to stop what would have been maybe the game-winning play for Ohio State because the official didn't catch 12 men on the field. Yeah, and I don't, who knows if they would have gone to replay for that or if, you know, I'm sure someone in the Georgia booth would have buzzed down and said, told Kirby he needed to challenge that. But man, just the heads up awareness. I think I saw somebody say like whatever, uh, whoever buzzed down the booth and told Kirby that it was going to be a fake, they, they called a fake alert down from the booth. And that's what caused Kirby to frantically call that timeout. And, you know, whoever signaled that in, Georgia needs to pay them whatever they want, right? <laughs> like, I don't know if it's, you know, in food or in money or in a new truck, whatever they want, yeah. <laughs> like pay that GA, whatever they want. But yeah, just an absolutely awesome moment. And it absolutely got in on time. You sync up the video. I know some people on Twitter have said like, oh, he called that timeout late. He didn't. He signaled for the timeout. And I think that the ref, when they kept showing that replay, I think the reason that it looked like it was after the snap is because the ref was just like completely caught off guard. That ref, that side judge was completely just flabbergasted. Why it was like you, you seem to do a double take, like, oh crap, I have to yeah. blow that. Um, but yeah, just an awesome coaching situation from Kirby Smart. Definitely, you know, obviously Ohio State had 12 men on the field, so it might not have mattered. But the rest of that game, you know, immediately after that punt, you have the long touchdown where the Ohio State defender falls down, the 76-yard touchdown on the very next play. Ohio State almost milks the entire clock out on that next drive. They have an 11-play drive where they kick a field goal, but then Georgia responds a really quick drive. You and I looked at each other and said, I think they might have left a little too much time on the clock there. And then that sets up, I think, the biggest question mark that some fans are looking at with that last drive for Ohio State and how they manage that last sequence. So... To set the stage, right, 52 seconds left, two timeouts for Ohio State. You're right. We both looked at each other and went, oh, boy, C.J. Stroud is about to Aaron Rodgers. That's a lot of time to get into field goal range. That is a an eternity to get in field goal range for one of the best kickers, the best kicker in Ohio State history, Noah Ruggles. Timeout, or a clock obviously stops on the first downs. 
So in college football, 52 seconds is plenty of time, let alone the fact that you have two timeouts. C.J. Stroud, one of the criticisms was that he doesn't run. He sticks in the pocket. He stays behind the line of scrimmage. Super athletic guy, just take off. He does on this drive. 27 yards, gets it down inside field goal range, down to the 30-yard line of, of the Bulldogs. And then this is where you're going to have a lot of discussion if you're an Ohio State fan. Take a timeout, stop the clock. You drop a run, negative negative play. You lose a yard. Two timeouts then, or I'm sorry, one timeout left, and you draw up two pass plays that both fall incomplete. So at this point, with the, the loss of that yard, it's a 50-yard field goal. C.J. Stroud throws an incomplete pass, and then the second time he's pressured out, excuse me, outside the pocket, has to throw it away. A lot of people are saying that Ryan Day got too conservative in this instance. Where I personally disagree is, like, look, what else do you want him to do? He calls the run play, gets stuffed. Good for Georgia. They stop the run play. And then, you know, the the secondary hadn't bowed up basically all game. They do on back-to-back plays. What What else would you have liked to see Ryan Day do, if anything? I'd have to go back and watch it. But I think my memory of those two plays were they they were kind of slow developing. Yeah, and I think you know if obviously you're missing your best wide receiver as well at that point, so that's that's a huge factor. But I think if you could just scheme something up quick, maybe like a screen or a quick slant, just to get you a little closer. You know, like if you're in the 45 yard range, I think you're feeling a lot better about that now. I don't want to throw the kid under the bus because, like you said, he's one of the best, if not the best, kickers in Ohio State history. But the execution of Noah Ruggles there was, I think, a little bit lacking as well. And I don't know yeah. if it was the I, I, Kirby iced him. He called the timeout. You and I looked at each other and said, I don't know about that. You might want that timeout in your back pocket if he makes this kick. But, you know, the the execution of the kick after the after the icing, Definitely left a lot to be desired. And I don't know that that would have been any easier from five yards in. So I'm not saying get the pitchforks out for uh, for Ryan Day after that uh, last last little sequence there, but I definitely don't think that he was satisfied with it being a 50-yard attempt. Yeah, I, to, to, I think for me to say that he was is crazy. Yeah, because he, he wanted yard, to get it closer. He wasn't satisfied with just parking it right there. Right. Yeah, this was not student body left, student body right. Let's just center this thing for a field goal attempt. And, you know, I feel so bad for Noah Ruggles. Um, you know, a guy who's delivered it at every opportunity just about for Ohio State um, and now is is, you know, being slandered by a fan base that, is just taking a lot of anger out on whoever they can. And listen, you know, it wasn't a high percentage, a high percentage look, but you know that that's a guy that can hit those and, you know, he shanks it. Uh, I think if you play golf, we've all been there, right? A big moment. You just, you turn the hands over and you throw a duck and that's, that's what happened there. That being said though, I think we, we can't lose the, kind of the impact of this moment. Ohio State, a non-conference champion, was 50 yards away, one field goal away from defeating the top team in the country and playing for a national title. We nearly had two non-conference champions 
play for a national title this year, which would have been insane yeah. to think about. Yeah, it would have caused some heads to explode for sure. But <laughs> man, and and for Ohio State, I think that you're if you were looking at this game objectively, if you took your SEC or your Georgia glasses off, I think that you saw that this could be a close game, right? I think that's what we were trying to point out, that this is a very talented team that's kind of built to, hasn't worked with Michigan the last couple of years, but we talked all season about how Ohio State is built to beat Michigan if they execute. Just like Michigan is built to beat Ohio State if they execute. Georgia and Michigan are very similar teams. In their construction, they're not the flashiest, most modern offenses. They can obviously make plays, and they've got a ton of talent, but they would rather win the game with run, running and defense. And Ohio State is engineered to beat that if they execute. The pro, mm-hmm. uh, They executed. Georgia just had more talent and made more plays. In the game. I'm curious. As, as we wrap up this episode, um, Jordan TCU, we'll have a full preview this next week. There's going to be so much to talk about there. You know, early impressions are, are that Georgia is the more talented team, the more physical team, should probably win every day and, and twice on Monday, right? But TCU has shown that time and time again, whether it's they're out scheming their opponents, whether they just want it more, that there's something to be said for the little guy, right? In in this era of college football. As we just look, and a lot of folks are diagramming what a 12-team playoff would have looked like this year, you know, the question of did Alabama deserve to be in, which, you know, shout out Garrett, he he made a point, a request that we mentioned that he believes that all four of these teams would have beaten Alabama, no question about it, despite what Alabama just did to Kansas State in the Sugar Bowl. Is there... Is there a hope? Do you feel like in a 12-team playoff where you would have a Tennessee, where you would have a Clemson in this year's format, when you would have a Tulane in, in the 12-team playoff? USC, Utah. Like USC and like, Utah, exactly, yeah. both in. Do you, do you think that what we saw this year, what we saw in these semifinal games, gives you hope that you can have a Tulane, that you can have a Utah? Uh, uh, you know, say like a, a North Carolina, had they won their conference championship game and gotten in, do you believe that there's a case that those kind of teams, these two, three loss teams that get in because of automatic qualifications can get hot, can get on a run and go win a national championship game? Or, or do we think that it's probably going to even out in a three-game tournament stretch you're really going to have the Georgias, the Michigans, the Ohio States win because of their talent and depth. It's going to depend on how those teams are made up. You can't just, in football, you can't just make a blanket statement that just because a team has lost three three times this year, that they're just going to get blown out the first time that they play a team that is more talented than them or anything like that. You also can't say that there's going to be a Cinderella run every single year because I think look at Tulane this year, if they are thrown into a 12-team playoff, one, it's all going to depend on who they're matched up with, right? I think they would play TCU in the first round. And so mm-hmm. do I think Tulane matches up well with TCU? Maybe, but maybe not. But they beat Kansas State, who beat TCU, right? So it, 
you can never the transitive property is never gonna be perfect but you see the glimpses that this could happen now is Tulane ever gonna make a miracle run to the national championship 99% chance no but the fact that there's a 1% chance and the fact that those fans can hold on to that 1% chance I think is worthwhile in this new system and I don't think that this is necessarily built more for the two lanes. I think it's built more for your 2012 Texas A&M's your, mm-hmm. you know, you, I, you can name a few more teams your 2022 Alabama, right. That has a lot of talent, has a quarterback that will give you a chance against anybody and is going to make for a really compelling matchup. Like you go back to 2012 A&M with Johnny Manziel, hottest team in the country. At the end of the year, they blew out the Big 12 champion in Oklahoma. And you're probably taking Johnny Manziel in that offense against almost anybody in the country. They had already beaten the eventual national champion. I think they absolutely would have slaughtered the Notre Dame team that ended up also in that BCS national oh, championship game. Yeah. But they would have been like a nine seed in this 12-team playoff format. They would have had to earn it. So that would have been entertaining. And you're building this system not for the years that you have, you know, three or four teams above the rest, but you're building it for the years that there's that really special team that didn't quite gel at the beginning. There's that quarterback that emerged and is really, really special and can carry his team to a victory, even when they're underdogs, but didn't bat a thousand. And right. Right. Like that's why you're building this system, not for the one off year, not to try to, you know, say like, Oh, these are the only teams that are deserving but you're building it for just more compelling matchups, I think. And it's going to be difficult for those teams with the lower seed to run the gauntlet. And that's what keeps the regular season interesting, right? Mm-hmm. That's what keeps the re- regular season relevant. You don't want to have to run a three-game gauntlet or a four-game gauntlet. Get that higher seed, you don't have to do that. So I think that system kind of combines the best of both worlds. I think it's going to be really entertaining. Even the people that are vehemently against it right now I think they'll come around after they see it in action for a few years. I, based off of what happened yesterday, I can't imagine why you wouldn't at least be willing to try a system that gives us potentially more of that, right? Yeah. That yeah, quarterfinal I, weekend, that's, it's going to be what we saw yesterday times two. There, there are going to be four games that are really, really compelling, close games because it's teams that are really, really close in pedigree and talent. Right. And I know people will point to the Sugar Bowl yesterday. We we don't have to get all into that. Alabama obviously handled Kansas State really, really easily yesterday, right? But I think that points to I would like to see Alabama go up against Garrett. I know Garrett said he thinks all four of these teams would beat Alabama easily, but throw Alabama in as a five seed in a twelve team format and like let them go into Athens or into Fort Worth and earn that way back in because they're clearly one of the most talented teams mm-hmm. have one of the best quarterbacks of all time. in Bryce young, why do we not want more of that? Why do we not want, you know, that team to get a shot? I, I know, I know the argument against it. We don't have to make this into a 12 team versus 14 thing, yeah. but it's more compelling to me. I agree. I think this way, this new system will take into account the fact that these games are not played on paper. I think the BCS in a condensed playoff format expect the results to transpire the way that an algorithm or computer would spit them out. And I think this allows for a lot more of the storylines to flourish, a lot more development as the season goes along. 
you know, that Utah team, look, I, the season did not go the way they wanted to, right? A three, three loss team. I'm, I'm not saying that they're one of the best teams in the country. Gosh, wouldn't have been fun to see them get a shot at wrecking somebody else's season. They wrecked USC's season to continue that momentum. Boy, that, that would have been a fun story to follow. But absolutely. All that to say, what a tremendous day of college football that we got yesterday. A day that we won't soon forget. I think it's a day that you're going to see relived for many, many years to come by Georgia fans, by TCU fans, by fans of college football. Maybe. Maybe not so much for the Big Ten. That was a dark day for Michigan and Ohio State. And they made uh, history, though. They became the first conference to ever lose two semifinals on the same day. <laughs> and TCU became the first Big 12 team to win a football playoff, so or yeah. a, a playoff game. So, yeah, yeah history made all over the place. Um, we're so excited to continue talking about that. There's going to be plenty of time in the offseason, again, as we really try and construct – some overarching storylines project forward for for different programs. I mentioned earlier, we're, we're going to talk Michigan. We'll, we'll need to talk Ohio State as well. What kind of is the outlook for those teams going into 2023? But before that, we will have the College Football National Champion between one team that was expected to be there in the Georgia Bulldogs and another team that a lot of people would have said, that's a Hollywood script, man. TCU has no chance. They were 230 to 1 odds before the season started to make a national championship. Did you see that uh did you see that graphic that SportsCenter ran last night like comparing it to um the professional teams that had the same odds? Uh-uh. And it was like similar to the Colorado Rockies winning the World Series or the um the the I can't remember what NFL team it was, but it was it was similar to like the Texans or yeah the Jaguars winning the Super Bowl this year. Like that's the kind of odds that we're talking about TCU having at the beginning of the season. Just crazy, 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 crazy. So why college football is such a great sport. We can't wait to break down the college football national championship coming up. Of course, Monday, January the 9th. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Georgia opened up, I believe is 13 and a half point favorites. I think you and I probably believe that is, few too many points to be given the Georgia Bulldogs. So if you are considering throwing a sh- couple of shekels on that game, uh, I think that number is a little too high in favor of the Georgia Bulldogs. We'll preview not financial advice. Not that's financial. right. Not absolutely not financial advice. Go do what you, what you so please. We'll have Garrett back this week as well as we get ready to preview that and look forward to the pinnacle of this season. What we've been Waiting for previewing, talking about since May when we started this podcast. Season one of the three technique comes to an end a week from today as you're listening to this. For Trey Reeves and Garrett Turney, who is uh, nursing a little cough, I'm Mitch Mason. Thanks for listening to us. We're excited to interact with you guys over this next week and watch the College Football National Championship together as well. Until next time, everyone. So long. Yeah.